following recording may or may not include instances of words being said that the FCC would find me for if their long arm could ever reach. It's Thursday, October 24th, 2019 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. There is a story, a Washington story that I do not quite understand. No, 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 not Ukraine. That I get. There was a quid pro quo. Trump said there wasn't, but there was. He said the Ukrainians didn't know about it, but they did. He said it wasn't bad, but it was bad. And then his guys said, well, an abuse of power isn't even impeachable. It's impeachable. That I get. The story that flummoxes me is what's going on with freshman California representative Katie Hill. Now, I want you to know that I had this this wonder, this irksome wonder, and I was going to lay it all, all on you guys last week, but I held back because we could not confirm the story. That's the kind of journalists we are. I could, in fact, right now, I could play the tape of what I recorded. I almost never do this, but I recorded some wonderings about the initial stories about Katie Hill, but then I said, no, we cannot play this if this is not confirmed, so I held it back. Right now, I could actually, if you wanted to, I could play the old tape of what I recorded, but you wouldn't be able to tell it's old tape. It would just sound like me talking. I mean, there's no creaky audio or a different style of speech like a newsreel from a bygone era, right? It's not, Representative Hill has thruppled on the double Dateline Washington where they're asking the freshman legislator, why'd you date her? Okay. One week ago, though, I will read what I was going to say much of it, much of it, all of it, I think, still holds true. Here we go. Red State, a not incredibly credible right-wing website, published details today of an affair conducted by Katie Hill, Democrat of California. Representative Hill, who identifies as bisexual, was married to a man, but Red State revealed the two were romantically involved with a third person, a woman, as part of a thruple. This woman was a staffer, according to Red State, which is one of the things that makes this story newsworthy. The word thruple in the headline made it a story of some curiosity, and the pictures documenting the thruple dumb cement for anyone wondering the exact nature of the thruppling. Hill is shown seated in a chair behind the third member combing her shoulder length brown hair. Hill is also naked with a breast blurred out. Red State wrote directly under the D.H. Lawrence-esque tableau. Red State was also provided with intimate photographs of the women, which we have chosen not to publish. Oh, Oh, those weren't the intimate photographs. Great. I guess we got the uh, Cinemax in the afternoon version. There was some debate within Slate as to whether Red State was acting ethically in publishing the picture of the intimate combing. Now, if you were to say it wasn't ethical, you would say that those pictures were gratuitously embarrassing and not newsworthy. I will now handle every word in that critique except the word gratuitously. It is embarrassing, but it is also newsworthy. Like I said, a member of Congress is alleged to have had an affair with a staffer that is not allowed under congressional rules. And the picture served to advance the story as proof that the interactions were of a sexual nature. On October 10th, Red State had a story headlined by sexual rep Katie Hill allegedly left her husband for her male finance director. And that story was almost entirely ignored. And maybe it should have been because it was in red state and that story had inaccuracies. Like it said, Hill is the second member of the squad going through a divorce in the midst of an alleged affair. And they referenced Ilan Omar, except Katie Hill's not a member of the squad. 
That's a pretty rudimentary mistake. And I have to say, I would be very disinclined to believe anything Red State wrote, but the pictures, they don't convince me uh, there is all sorts of chicanery possible, but the pictures do push the story more towards the realm of the believable. We will have to wait to see how the story progresses. That, I said that exactly on Friday. That was a week ago. Here's now how the story has progressed. For three to four days, the story was on that website, Red State. No one touched it. And that's why we here at The Gist held back. But eventually on Tuesday, Representative Hill herself addressed it and all manner of media reported on her statement, which was reflected in this Politico headline, which ran Tuesday. Freshman Dem Katie Hill denies improper relationship with aid, quote, I am disgusted that my opponents would seek to exploit such a private matter for political gain. Yesterday, regarding that denial, CNN ran the headline, Congresswoman shuts down improper relations rumors. CNN then read part of Katie Hill's statement. This coordinated effort to try to destroy me and people close to me is despicable and will not succeed. The second part of the statement, the smear campaign, this smear campaign will not get in the way of the work I am doing every day to move our district and our country forward. Let us cut to today. The news is that Representative Katie Hill confirmed She had an inappropriate relationship with a campaign staffer following an announcement Wednesday of a probe by the House Committee on Ethics. On Tuesday, she said she did not have a relationship with Legislative Director Graham Kelly, but she walked back that account the next day, saying in a letter to constituents that she got involved with Kelly, quote, during the final tumultuous years of my abusive marriage, the Los Angeles Times reported, quote, I know that even a consensual relationship with a subordinate is inappropriate, but I still allowed it to happen despite my better judgment. Okay, now I guess I understand what the story is. It seems like if there is an ethical balance here, the fulcrum shifts from red state, did they do right or wrong, to Katie Hill. Is she doing right or wrong? She has a couple of defenses available to her. Some of these defenses could, and I see they already are resonating with folks predisposed to feel sympathy with her position anyway. One is that she is the victim of revenge porn, and California does have a revenge porn statute. It seems that whoever leaked the photos of her embracing a paid staffer while she was naked was out for revenge and was disseminating porn. However, there clearly was a news value to the pictures. We're living in the news value. They exposed an ethical breach, or to be fair, an alleged ethical breach. The second argument would be something like pro-thruppling, pro-polyamory, anti-thruple shaming, that stance. Yes, and I do acknowledge the right wing is delighting in calling her depraved, that's unfair, and calling the thruppling troubling, that's their opinion. But I hope that Katie Hill does not light upon those arguments because I think to advance those arguments would be a selfish act and would actually do a disservice to real victims of revenge porn or other people who want to thruple with no ethical entanglements. And to read the House Code of Ethics, Section 18A, a member may not engage in a sexual relationship with an employee of the House who works under the supervision of that member, and there are no exceptions for thruples. In the spiel today, I talk about Mark Zuckerberg's testimony before Congress and a quote-unquote devastating question he got. But first, he is a young writer for Quillette, 
who is provocative and erudite in equal measure, so much so that the House of Representatives invited him to speak in opposition of reparations at a recent hearing, invited to speak in front of Congress at the age of 23. Not a hard choice, right? Well, actually it was. And you will find out why as I talk to Coleman Hughes up next. Coleman Hughes is a writer and a philosopher, or actually a philosophy major, because this young man, a student at Columbia, has broken onto the scene, the scene of intellectualism, heterodoxy, writing about social issues, testifying before Congress, and I've been reading him for a while now. I love his writing, and I've liked talking to him in person in the past, and so I said to myself, wait a minute, I have a show with microphones that plug in and keep the tape, let's do it for real. Hey, Coleman. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me on, Mike. So I want to talk to you about some of the latest things you've been writing, and I want to talk to you about your testimony before Congress. But let's get a little background on you. Did I get your age right? You're 23? Yes. Where'd you grow up? Montclair, New Jersey. What was Montclair like? Montclair is a very nice suburb, about 30 minutes away from New York, known for its diversity. It and is its, known for its diversity, its yes. Its progressiveness, and it's pretty good school system. So yeah, that's where I grew up. How... Did you feel about or think about race and racism when you were a young man? Um, not I, that. I hesitate Everyone listening say, would say he's not a young man still. But when you when were I a teenager a young, or younger? I, I hesitate to say I didn't see race because that is literally untrue. But yeah, you knew who the black kids were. Yeah, <laughs> who the white I knew who the were. black kids were, who the white kids were. But my friend group was very diverse. Uh, you know, at a very young age, I don't remember thinking about race all that often. Mm-hmm. What did your parents do for a living, and how did they talk to you about these subjects? My father was a lawyer. My mother was getting a PhD, but had a background in advertising, but was getting a PhD in cultural anthropology and became something of a Marxist uh -huh. around the time that I was born. So what I got from my mother was a lot of Marxism and a lot of class consciousness. Uh, my father was more of a fan of Ayn Rand, uh, something of a libertarian, and I didn't get his views as much, but... I got from his parents, my grandparents, who were descended from slaves on Thomas Jefferson's Monticello plantation, I got a lot of that history and the mix of pride and woundedness of that history from my grandparents who keep the names of our ancestors written in the wills of slave masters and they have copies of the documents and wow. they would show them to me as a little kid and talk about how we knew our lineage and Whatnot. So your race consciousness came from your grandparents, mostly, your paternal grandparents. It was more of a historical consciousness mm -hmm. than a race consciousness, but yeah. Okay, so you've been living your life and coming up with your ideas and writing your stories and reporting. How do you come to the attention of the U.S. House of Representatives? I wrote a piece arguing against paying reparations of slavery to all descendants of slaves around March or April of this past year on Quillette where I'm a columnist, and one of the subcommittees brought up Bill H.R. 40, which has been floating around for a few decades, but has never been taken all that seriously by enough people. Right. This is a bill that would study and consider national apology and, and paying reparations to descendants of slaves. One of the Republicans on that committee read my essay, and after going through many other people, you know, I think I was rather deep in the bullpen mm -hmm. for, for this, that many other people said no. I initially said no. And Why'd then, you say no initially? Well, you know, getting up there on national TV for five minutes, which is not very long, you can't even 
recite an op-ed in five minutes. And then being... This is the time allotted for your opening statement. Your correct. pre-written opening statement. They tell you it's the time allotted. They everyone tell goes you over. Yeah. Every, I mean, I didn't know everyone went over. Right. If I had known that, I would have said more. But, you know, the, the inevitable public shaming that comes in the wake of that, it didn't seem like something I wanted to sign up for as a human being who enjoys being happy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, on the other hand, after I said no, I felt I was saying no out of cowardice, and mm-hmm. that didn't sit right with me. So I reversed and said yes. Did you get back in touch with them just based on your own self-examination, or did other things happen, like three more people in the bullpen said no? I, I wasn't exactly aware of what was... It, it was really just my own... It was me asking people in my life whether I should do it, the people I go to for advice... And almost every single one of them said, just stay away from this. This is bad news. Really? Yeah. You're, you're asked except, to except, testify before the House of Representatives. Yeah. And all the people who had your best interests at heart said, don't testify before the House of Representatives. Yeah. yeah. Um, part, partly because I would be testifying on the Republican side, though I'm not a Republican. And that would probably just leave a residue on my reputation in certain quarters that might be bad in the long run. Right. Only person to his credit that told me I should do it is our mutual friend Noam Dorman. And the arguments he was making were better than the arguments I was hearing from my other, you know, people who give me advice. So tell me exactly what the case, exactly what the case you were arguing for in your article in front of Congress was. So I mean the, the article was slightly different from Congress, but I'll just talk about Congress. My my argument was that I'm fine with paying reparations to people who were born under Jim Crow, born, uh, you know, my grandparents would be an example, Mm -hmm. born in D.C., forced to go to segregated schools, shut out in many official and semi-official ways from civic society. Paying reparations in that case makes perfect sense. Paying reparations to me as a descendant of slaves born in 96, you know, and, and the majority of the, you know, the median black person is like in their early 30s, right? Yes. At this point. doesn't make sense because I wasn't directly implicated there. And so there's there's that. And I guess the big picture, people define reparations in two ways, either as a simple cash check with slavery in the memo line or as a bundle of policies that are either targeted towards black people specifically or are just general policies like universal health care. People yes. will talk about, you know, that as a form of reparations or criminal justice reform as right. a form of reparations. Or so, even uh, even policies that are societally beneficial, yet we all know or it can be proved that black people would be the major beneficiary. Disp- yeah, right. right. There'd be a disparate yeah. positive impact on black people. And my my argument against reparations depends on whether you're talking about the former, the, the check or the bundle of policies. If we're just talking about giving everyone a check, every black person descended from slaves a check, first, we should acknowledge that this is not going to solve any of the structural problems that are responsible for the fact that black people um, have lower test scores on average. It, it's in schools are less likely likely to go to college. You know, upward mobility, at least for black men, is is worse than for white men much more likely. So so all of these problems, none of those is going to be solved by a one-time check, no matter how large. And and as you get large, you you get into how you're going to pay for this, and you get some really crazy numbers. Mm -hmm. So there's that. There's also the fact that, 
I think some degree, some number of people would be kind of insulted to get a check for slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's just the practical element there. And then if you want to talk about reparations as a bundle of policies that like, like universal health care and criminal justice reform, which was the dominant view among the pro-reparations folks at Congress, that there's also just a pragmatic argument against that, which is, does universal health care become more or less possible feasible, popular, implementable, if we give it the heading, the label of reparations for slavery. Yeah. I think almost certainly it becomes less possible, less feasible. If you're selling universal health care to American, the, the, the American public as what this is, is reparations for slavery, do you want it or do you not? I think you've instantly made it less popular. That's true. But, you know, the way Barack Obama would always talk about it and did with Ta-Nehisi Coates in one of the last interviews he gave as president was, look, if you want to talk about reparations like the check, I'm against that. And for many of the same reasons you listed. But if you want to talk about reparations as universal health care or the policies I've enacted that would help black people, then yes, I'm all for it. So Obama, smart politician, wasn't saying, I now introduce the American Reparation Act and it really is just the ACA. Mm -hmm. He was introducing the ACA and saying, please consider them to be reparations. Yes, you must. So the second makes way more sense than the first. Sure. Like if if you're going to advertise it as the... Yes, universal health care for all Americans. And by the way, when you're talking to a certain crowd who wants the, the race angle, say, well, this is, yeah, I'm not doing reparations, but, you know, I'm doing universal health care. And that's kind of like reparations um, as like a sidebar, as a parenthetical. I can see how that would be politically useful to someone like Obama um, and how that would make sense. But the people pushing reparations were doing the opposite. They wanted a reparations package and in that package would be things like criminal justice reform, universal health care, etc. I think that's a political disaster for a country where, you know, something like three quarters of people are against reparations for slavery. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Not a fringe view by any stretch of the imagination. Something like a third of black people consistently poll against it. In terms of accepting the invitation, on the show, I talked about your testimony. I think I only glancingly said Coleman Hughes did a great job. And then mostly I talked about Burgess Owens, who was someone else who was testifying. And I went into his past and he said, to my mind, a lot of absolutely ridiculous things about the Democratic Party being socialists and communists. And I mean, to me, being paired with that guy alone would give me pause to be on the dais. What about you? Yeah, I, I disagreed with most of Burgess's lines. I thought they were very reductionist, very partisan. You know, I don't, I don't see the Democratic Party the way he does. I think, you know, I've only voted once and it was for a Democrat and I plan to vote against Trump again. Okay. So after it was all done, immediately after, or and even during the testimony, you got a lot of flack from protesters in the hall. You got, as they say, dragged online. But are you happy you did it? Like, what are the cons and what are the pros having done it? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't regret doing it. It was definitely, you know, I, I don't like being mass shamed on social media. Mm-hmm. I think most normal people don't get off to that kind of thing. Not something I, I wish to repeat, but... I'm glad I said what I said and you know what what part of what drove me to do it I guess there's two things one is if I hadn't gone and they had gotten someone 
sort of more similar to Burgess, who gave a perspective that was just so far from how many people are thinking on this issue. I feared that the the side that opposed reparations would look so weak and partisan, mm-hmm. and it would come across as if there were no no good arguments against it. And I felt that I would have lots of regrets if I said no and looked back at, at who they got and just saw kind of p- partisan hackery and, versus the scholarship of the pro-reparation side. So there's that. And the bigger picture is I feel very strongly a, that the relationship of Americans and black Americans in particular, but also increasingly white Americans, the relationship to our history is perverted and unhealthy, which is to say, you know, read the history of any nation and you're going to find a litany of absolute horrors perpetrated by people. I mean, like there's no group of people that has not at some point been the perpetrators and the victims of something horrible from, you know, a state-enforced famine to a genocide to a war where the women and children were killed and raped. That's the history that we're all trailing. And it's 2019. The question is what relationship we have to that history. And increasingly, I'm seeing people teach the history of American slavery and, you know, through public, through, through schools and through cultural symbols and teaching people to internalize it as if it happened to them or as if they perpetrated it. To, to get as emotional about the history of slavery as you do an abuse that's going on right now. In fact, to get more emotional, right? Like m- people are more emotional about slavery, you know, despite our you know, century and a half distance from it than they are about slavery currently happening in the world. And I, I don't, I think that's a, a very unhealthy emotional orientation to have towards history. After you, after you testified or after you write articles, do you get people coming up to you who aren't in the milieu of, you know, heterodoxy and Quillette readers or, or public intellectuals, just, you know, the people you go to school with, the people m- maybe think about politics more or less, who interact with you, agree with you, maybe even say, you know, I agree, but I can't say it out loud. Do you get that? Yeah, that happens from time to time. I mean, uh, in Harlem and occasionally I just get someone like, hey, I'm a fan. Does anyone accost you? Uh, I've been accosted properly once when I was on the subway. Someone came up to me and started immediately laying into me uh-huh. about my opinion on reparations. And I ended up inviting him to dinner. And what happened? He just disagreed with me condescendingly in, in some in some cases. But we ended up having a decent conversation and leaving it on good terms. They're on the subway. We were both on the subway. He recognized me. Yeah. I got off the subway. He went straight up to me despite having, you know, I had large headphones on and was listening to music, immediately starts talking to me. Yeah. And I was just- Was the white guy, a black guy? Black guy. Uh-huh. And, and did, did you guys go to dinner? Yeah. I, I wow. Was, I was actually on my way to, to yeah. dinner with Noam and Juanita. Yeah. And I just told him to tag along and he did. <laughs> and how'd that go? It went okay. Yeah. Yeah, it was okay. Did Noam pay for his dinner? Well, he he didn't get anything. Okay. Yeah. So I was wondering if there was like a quasi-reparation thing going on there too. <laughs> <laughs> Coleman Hughes is a writer for Quillette and uh, testifier before Congress, among other things. Coleman, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. And now the spiel. 
Yesterday, Mark Zuckerberg was before Congress to answer questions about the democracy warping product that has made him the sixth richest man in the world. On this show, if you heard, I talked about the deficiencies of his answers. Maxine Waters wasn't perfect in her questioning, but she was good. Shouldn't give him hypotheticals or distract from the issue at hand. The issue at hand is why do you let politicians lie in their ads? And therefore, what she did was help expose that he was actively engaged in neglecting his civic responsibility. All right. Now we go to Representative Katie Porter of California. She, on the other hand, engaged in an exchange with Zuckerberg about another aspect of his $55 billion a year grossing website or suite of sites. Here is the beginning of that exchange. Facebook's known as a great place to work, free food, ping pong tables, great employee benefits, but Facebook doesn't use its employees for the hardest jobs in the company. You've got about 15,000 contractors watching murders, stabbings, suicides, other gruesome, disgusting videos for content moderation, correct? Uh, Congressman, yes, I believe that that's correct. It is correct, and it is a horror show. In light of how tough this job is, stories of contractors weeping, needing psychological help, and essentially being ignored, Zuckerberg should, in fact, be made to answer. This, what I'm about to play for you, however, is where Representative Porter took the inquiry. Would you be willing to commit to spending one hour a day for the next year watching these videos and acting as a content monitor and only accessing, accessing the same benefits available to your workers? Uh, Congresswoman, we, we work hard to make sure that we give good benefits to all the folks who are doing I, this. Mr. Zuckerberg, reclaiming my time, I would appreciate a yes or a no. Now, when Mark Zuckerberg goes before Congress, he has but one goal, which is to deflect and get the hell out of there. Don't make it worse. Don't engage. Don't get in a fight. Don't even defend yourself if it risks making it worse. Because I think an obvious point would be to answer that yes or no question would be to say, no, no, I'm the founder and CEO of the sixth most valuable publicly traded company in the world. In fact, I will not commit an hour of my day, be it an hour of doing my overall business or an hour away from my family or an hour spent on yoga. I will not commit to spending that hour doing a $15 an hour job that we pay contractors to do. I, if I were Zuckerberg, I might be tempted to say, I think it's a ridiculous question. But of course, Mark Zuckerberg can't say that's a ridiculous question. Now, on Twitter, Judd Legum, who writes the popular information newsletter, and in doing so performs a valuable service as a journalistic watchdog, and I do subscribe to his newsletter, Judd called it devastating, called Katie Porter's question devastating. I disagree. I think, will you work an hour a week in content moderation? I think that's not devastating. I think it's stupid. I think it's stupid, grandstanding, that actually gets you nowhere. Remember that part in the movie The Social Network where Jesse Eisenberg as Zuckerberg is asked by a lawyer, do I have your attention? And then Zucker slash Eisenberg answers this way. It's raining. I'm sorry? It just started raining. Mr. Zuckerberg, do I have your full attention? No. Do you think I deserve it? What? Do you think I deserve your full attention? I had to swear an oath before we began this deposition, and I don't want to perjure myself, so I have a legal obligation to say no. Okay, no. 
You don't think I deserve your attention? I think if your clients want to sit on my shoulders and call themselves tall, they have a right to give it a try. But there's no requirement that I enjoy sitting here listening to people lie. You have part of my attention. You have the minimum amount. The rest of my attention is back at the offices of Facebook, where my colleagues and I are doing things that no one in this room, including and especially your clients, are intellectually or creatively capable of doing. Did I adequately answer your condescending question? It's satisfying. It's satisfying dramatically because it's wish fulfillment. We never get to hear what the actual Mark Zuckerberg is thinking. So Aaron Sorkin, through the portrayal by Jesse Eisenberg, fulfills that desire by giving us an insight into the mind of this man-boy who is so profoundly affecting our lives. I'd love to have heard a similar response, a real response, from the real internal monologue of Mark Zuckerberg. No, Congresswoman, I won't do that job. Do you want to know why? It's not that on a permanent basis, I made $28,500 last year, meaning an hour of my time is worth $1.7 million. It's not that that makes me sound haughty, but I do want to put in perspective how ridiculous the request is. I will not spend an hour a day doing this admittedly tough job at my sprawling, world-changing company for the same reasons that President Obama, though he authorized the use of force against ISIS in Afghanistan, would not commit to spending time patrolling for roadside bombs in Nangarhar province. For the same reason that you, Representative, won't commit to cleaning the toilets here at the U.S. Capitol. You benefit from the clean toilets. My site, and therefore my wealth, benefits from people in my company doing this distasteful job. But just as your time is better spent pursuing legislation and hopefully trying to come up with good questions to hold public figures accountable, as some of your colleagues have actually done, my time is better spent doing a myriad of other things, like inventing the new form of communication for the next century, and also for, say, re-examining my errors and correcting my mistakes. I think my time is better spent preventing my app from being weaponized to eradicate the Rohingya than by watching videos of nasty things. That's a tough job. I'm not denying that's a tough job. And we do pay above market rates. And everyone who takes the job knows what the job entails. But just as you vote for military appropriations that pays employees of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency not only to watch killing, but to actually literally perpetuate the drone killings, we pay people to make sure our users who didn't ask for it don't see disturbing images, that they don't have to experience the trauma, and that the only ones who do are literally the people who sign up for it. That would have been a good answer. When I opined on Twitter that, no, it wasn't a devastating line of questioning from Rep. Porter, many people asked me, how stupid do you have to be to miss the point? I get the point. Content moderation is a horrific job. Plus, Zuckerberg seems to be doing less than all he can to alleviate the pain of the content moderators. Hey, maybe the lawmakers should force him to do so. But no, no, I get the point. The point that I disagree with is that it was such a devastating line of questioning. It seemed less devastating, a more risible, implausible, rhetorical showboating excess. But I also do have a broader point here. And here it is. I do think that congressional hearings are a way to hold the powerful accountable. And I do think that Representative Maxine Waters' questions for Zuckerberg may have made him squirm. 
Maybe made him rethink his position. Or at least it gave Zuckerberg a headache. Maybe he said to his team, good point. Maybe he said, it is going to be tough fighting this. Maybe he said, the idea of not monitoring ads for truthfulness is not worth the blowback. Maybe he said, it is, but this is going to be a tough fight. But when his billion-dollar feet are being held to the fire, by the way, that's $6 billion each toe, and when that fire takes the form of, will I spend an hour a week watching snuff films? I think he laughs at that. I think he and his team says, well, that sure was a reasonable request. Way to swing big there, Rep Porter. We're going to have to think about that one. Will I commit to content moderation an hour a day? (laughs) It strikes me, Mike, It strikes me, I'm only a concerned, removed observer. I have no Facebook stock. I kind of actively loathe Facebook. It just makes me laugh. I'm pretty scornful of that question. What do you think it does to Mark Zuckerberg and his people? So I don't think it was a devastating line of inquiry. I think the people falling all over themselves, telling each other it was a devastating line of inquiry, do not understand what constitutes effective tactics in this struggle and as such are deeply unserious about their desire for reform, as Zuckerberg surely is about the real possibility of spending too much time in the content mines. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Daniel Schrader, who doesn't want to have to spend time checking to see if Farmville is on the up and up. Just was also produced by Christina DeJosa, who really asks not to have to go through all the pokes, seeing who to unpoke, who to repoke. The gist. We hereby note that Facebook is a $55 billion app whose main purpose is to tell you if that girl from high school who you haven't talked to in 12 years, if it's her birthday. Well, I guess it's worth it. Let's let them destroy democracy. Oomperu, depperu, dupru, and thanks for listening.